Today's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by K-Sleep. What could be more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? That's where K-Sleep comes in. K-Sleep's revolutionary and easy-to-use software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and to track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search, and built-in document review, K-Sleep makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at ksleep.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Um, wanted to just make a note of something. Uh, the name of the uh, Washington football team is in the news again. Uh, I know this has been the subject of several lawsuits that Bill's written about and talked about on the show. They're apparently yep. sending out some... New, some, they're, they're like air, they're like test ballooning some new names to like some of the season ticket holders started leaking out on Twitter today. Oh, um, Red Tails is the uh, seems to be the leader in the clubhouse. This is in honor of the Tuskegee Airmen. Isn't that, a mi- isn't that a Midwestern Twizzler Im- Im- imposter? <laughs> that's <laughs> oh no, that's, that's Red, Red Vines. Vines. Red, yeah, sorry, Red Vines. sorry. There's a couple other there's a couple other pretty generic ones, but I just bring it up because I thought. Uh, you know, Washington, of course, is the seat of government, but it's also the seat of the legal system. It's where they write the laws and, you know, and that's, you know, where they're flowing from the enforcement of the laws and the interpretation of the laws. I feel like they could be dipping into the legal world for some names. I had some ideas. Great. Uh, you guys want to hear them? <laughs> this, I'm not, I'd love to. I'm not this a big. Is, this f- is content right here. <laughs> I'm not a big fan <laughs> of uh, collective nouns. You see this a lot in the NBA, the Miami Heat, the Orlando Magic, the Utah Jazz. Uh, but, but what do you guys think of the Washington justice? It's just kind of Washington justice. The Washington it justice. sounds like yeah. a new, um, cop show like that's coming to you. It sounds mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, like Chicago legal or whatever. Well, right. It well, sounds like I one mean, of those. It, they, they, they could, it, it's, it lends itself to marketing. I think pretty easily if, if Washington, you know, does it just, just, well, listen, <laughs> If you if they if they go and smack around the Eagles on Sunday, you know the 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 the, the social team is saying, now that's that's some Washington justice we just got there. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I'm really on board with that. Then uh, sure. this this whole segment was reverse engineered about around that line. Oh no, wait, oh wait, no, that's that's not even the best one. I got other ones here. All right, uh, keep going. How do you guys feel about the Washington gavels? I don't oh, feel good about gavels. it. Gavels. Okay. Is the mascot just a giant anthropomorphized yeah, gavel? Yeah, oh, you no. like you no, you, no, you you like mobilize no. the hammer. Okay, oh, uh, hate right. It. Hate it. All right. Okay. Let's get a little weirder with it. Washington jury instructions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the All Washington right. habeas corpuses. Sure. Made ever made the other team into a habeas corpse. Here's one I really. Okay, this is the last one. Then we can move on. I real. I sincerely like. Maybe I. This is way big time legal reporter brain going on. Uh-huh. I like the Washington appeals. Why not? Oh you didn't go. God. You didn't go with Supremes here at any point. Wow. Hey, I, I opened the floor. The Washington wow. Supremes. That yeah. that's also cool. Um, Supremes is better. I like would, that. Would they draw a lawsuit from the from the music from the the from the estate of the music group? Uh, no, no. Okay, we Different don't have to go into that. Right? Yeah, because uh, the context. All right, I've, well. I've sorted it out. I've I've analyzed <laughs> it from a legal perspective, and the answer is no. Yeah, well, there's like, I don't know, there's like a thousand high schools named Wildcats, so that's that's probably true. Uh, anyway, uh, that was bubbling up in my head. 
Good luck on naming the team there, uh, Dan Snow. I uh, can't wait till we get a flood of emails of people telling us the names they want now. Yeah, hey, that by are all legal means. related. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they probably up. don't want to choose Eagles because uh, the stink on that team these days. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, if you're just joining us, this is uh, Law 360's football talk. Uh, That's like it's more this like is the only talk. kind of football yeah. talk I love, where we are just talking about puns and legal names. Yeah, That's yeah, right, right in my wheelhouse. Okay, uh, but we do have a good show to get to. We, yes. um, Alex and I were able to talk to one of our senior reporters on the labor beat, Braden Campbell, about the big union vote at an Amazon warehouse. Uh, that was in the news. I think people will have heard about it, but we get into it with Braden because there's a lot of fallout from that vote. So we talk all through what that means for the labor movement moving forward. Some simmering legal challenges to quasi-legal administrative challenges, things like that. It was good talk with him, uh, so stick around for that. Uh, Do have some news to dispense with. First, we begin uh, with what what has become a canonical pro se topic. And that, of course, is the Varsity Blues college admissions scandal. Uh, But we are not talking about uh, any new pleas or sentencing uh, in the case itself. But instead, we are talking today about a lawsuit against Netflix uh, over the documentary that it recently released about the scandal. Uh, The streaming uh, giant was hit with a defamation case last week by a Massachusetts uh, businessman named John Wilson, who is one of several parents who was charged with making illicit payments to get his children into college under false pretenses. The issue here in the complaint um, is that Wilson says, uh, well, or rather that he is, he is one of the handful of defendants who has actually pleaded not guilty and is actually still fighting the government. And in the complaint, he says that Netflix sort of unfairly fudges the lines or lumps him in with these other parents who have since pleaded guilty and in some cases already completed their, their jail sentences. And he says this, uh, this basically destroyed his reputation. So that's sort of at the, that's at the crux of the new suit. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about sort of that distinction, because I think most people know this, uh, even from when we've talked about it before and just reading about it generally, you know, it's the the Aunt Beckys that and, and yeah. people that have already made it through the system fully that most people have tracked, not these people that are still saying they're not guilty and, mm-hmm. and fighting the government. So what's going on with that aspect of it? Yeah, well, let's situate, I think, a little bit on uh, this guy, John Wilson, specifically. Um, his The allegations against him, the charges against him, follow the, the same pattern for a lot of these cases that we've talked about on the show. He is a private equity guy. He used to be uh, an executive at Staples, the office supply uh, store. Um, he lives in Massachusetts, and prosecutors have charged him with um, paying over one and a half million dollars to the Varsity Varsity Blues ringleader, a guy named Rick Singer, um, to help his son get into USC as a water polo recruit and for his uh, two daughters to attend uh, Harvard and Stanford. Now, uh, Wilson does not deny making the payments, um, but he has consistently said in his filings to court um, his belief that these were made under the impression that Singer was running a legitimate business helping kids get into school rather than this huge scheme that was uncovered by the feds that involves like doctoring kids athletic credentials and falsifying mm-hmm. their test scores. Wilson says that his son actually is a standout water polo player and he and he was under the impression that he was earning his USC scholarship um uh, or his USC admission uh fully on merit and that his daughters have exceptionally high test scores and things like that. Um now he's He's disputing these various fraud charges that have been filed against him, whereas dozens of other parents have pled out 
uh, like I say, in some cases have served jail time. But he's continuing to fight the government on those charges, and he's actually set for a trial sort of on the merits that's supposed to start in September. So, I mean, libel lawsuits are obviously so much about what specifically was said by the defendant. So let's get into what, you know, let's talk about what what this documentary actually does um, and what this guy is claiming in his lawsuit. Yeah. So Netflix released this documentary in March. It's called, it's a very straightforward name, called Operation Varsity Blues, The College Admissions Scandal. That's very SEO optimized. Um, And it features, it's kind of an interesting presentation. I watched it this morning. Um... It features recreations of phone conversations between Singer and these parents that were tapped by the FBI after Singer flipped and he became a cooperating witness. So there's an actor who is playing Wilson, the parent, um, and he's featured very early in the film. And he's talking to Singer, who is portrayed by Matthew Modine in a in just a a riveting performance as uh, as Rick Singer, and they are talking about his daughters. Um, uh, trying to get into college and uh, trying to present them as playing certain sports in order to help them get uh, in, in order to help them get in. And I think we have some sound. So what sport would be the best for them? Is is crew the best? Is that even going to really matter? Well, for me, it doesn't matter. I'll make them a sailor or something because of where you live. Massachusetts businessman John Wilson. He runs a private equity firm. He's accused of paying more than a million dollars to try to get his kids into elite universities. And same kind of deal, any sport. You don't have to play the sport. That's correct. Now, um, what if they don't actually get in? No, no, no. You don't have to worry about it. It's a done deal. Okay. That's great. Okay. I'll send you the information about the bank and the wiring stuff probably in the next day or so. Um, and so that's basically it. Um, he's not featured very prominently in the documentary. In fact, they don't come back to him at all. That's in the first uh, 20 minutes or so of the film. Um, there are other defendants who get a little more. They, they, they dive a little deeper into the circumstances um, of those conversations. But they, there's a note in the film that says these recreations are being taken directly from transcripts of these wiretaps. Um, and they are, you know, they are condensed. They are edited in some cases uh, just to, to sort of present it. Um, and, but that's, that's about the extent of Wilson's uh, depiction in the movie. And at the end of the documentary, the producers do include a note saying that Wilson has pleaded not guilty. This is in a rundown of all the other people discussed and it says what they pleaded to and what, what they were sentenced to and things like that. Um, but in the, in the, in the actual suit, um, Wilson says that the movie doesn't do enough to sort of clarify the distinction between himself and the parents who have pled guilty. And he specifically says that he and his legal team provided Netflix with like exculpatory documents before the, before the movie was released, basically relating to his kids academic and athletic performance. And even the results of a lie detector that he says that he passed basically saying that he was not under the impression that he was paying bribes or doing anything wrong. And he says that, their failure to include this destroyed his reputation. Here's a quote from the, from the complaint. Netflix and the other defendants knowingly and recklessly ignored those facts and painted the Wilsons with the broadest and dirtiest brush possible, those facts being the, the exculpatory ones I was uh, referring to. The suit seeks damages uh, and a public retraction from Netflix. Uh, again, it was just filed last week, so this is uh, basically all we have to go on. Netflix hasn't uh, issued a response yet, but those are basically the outlines of the thing. 
Yeah, I mean, I haven't watched this one yet, Alex, and you've got me thinking I need to go back and watch this documentary, but um, what are we to make of these claims? I mean, if it's kind of a small part of the broader documentary, um, you know, yeah. what's the well, upshot here? Yeah, well, yeah, and Bill can even speak to this, too. Uh, this is obviously your area of, of expertise more than mine, but I think it's interesting to, obviously central to the defamation case is the truth or falsehood of Wilson's conduct, which is itself subject to an entirely different criminal proceeding. Like I said, they are due for a for a trial in September on whether he actually did these things. Yeah. Um, so the 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 circumstances of the defamation case are a little bit up in the air as I see it. But I mean, if you have any thoughts on it, I would. Uh, no, I, I mean, I, without getting into the specifics, you know, yeah. it, it it you do have a pretty wide berth. Uh, to, you know, to report on things that are happening in a criminal case in a public proceeding, something yeah. like this. Um, so, you know, and it seems like they made a, a real effort to stick pretty strictly to the, you know, the way that that this stuff was in transcripts and came out of legal documents. Um, yeah. I, I, I think, I don't know, I think it, se- it seems like a little bit of a stretch to me to, to you know, just being in, being lumped into this this documentary somehow implies that you are guilty as long as they made clear that that it's you know it's an ongoing criminal case i i I don't think that you know getting the one side getting one side's arguments involved in the case more so would have you know it's 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 hard to say but um yeah i i i think about i think about it all the time the way we kind of talk about it this is we what we do is not making a documentary but i do think about when we say about complaints that have been filed and we say oh this is what's been alleged and this is what people have a response to and how much of how much weight do you give one thing or the other we'll sort of see where it goes um uh one other thing that's that's in the doc which is pretty interesting is they they kind of paint him as one of the more opulent defendants we've talked a lot about how these the like where these where these parents often fit in like the rich people pecking order they're not like the super duper rich but they clearly have a leg up in the system in certain regards. Uh, later on in the movie, uh, he or later on in the conversation that we just heard a part of, uh, Wilson actually invites Singer to his birthday party in Paris. He says, "He says we we rented out Versailles." Uh, just a funny little bit of color there. Jeez. <laughs> um, so you know, we'll we'll see where it goes. Um, if anything, just in the sort of broader trend of reporting on Varsity Blues, we're now. I just think it's uh, it's a watershed moment. Really, we're moving beyond. Uh, just reporting about what happened with the investigations, and now there are sort of metatextual lawsuits about the way it's depicted. <laughs> cases in about media. cases about cases about that's cases. Exactly, that's exactly right. This is, I uh, wait for this moment with every case when it syncs up with Netflix. Then I know, I know we've really right. made it. Yeah. So yeah, we'll keep eyes on that one, but uh, obviously an interesting case. All right. So for our second story, we're going to jump from something we've talked about a lot to something we haven't talked about at all, which is uh, the. The issue of SPACs, uh, it's the hottest thing on Wall Street. They are, uh, they're, they're also known as blank check companies. Um, they have uh, exploded over the past year. It's this alternate route for companies to go public that's um, sort of quicker and easier than a traditional IPO. Um, like I said, it has boomed over the last year, but uh, increasingly over the, the the past few months, federal regulators have begun to signal that they are really taking a look at these things and uh, might dive in. So, so this felt like the right moment for our legal news podcast to finally have a have a show to talk about SPACs. Now, all I know about SPACs is that when I read tweets about it, 
I think I hear Little John chanting "Spacks, Spacks, 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 Spacks." Is this so the, <laughs> is this the first reference to Little John on the show? I, I think we'll ha- so. That it's that sounds right, but we'll, we'll have, we have to cover it. We haven't covered a lawsuit about turned down for what? Uh, oh, I'm, no. Uh, again, no, that's, but that, think that's of all the legal puns we could work into that. I know. Um, okay, so, so let's so I don't get know in. a lot. I was like, how about we not do another tangent? Uh, I am I, I I'm re- <laughs> I'm responsible for enough of those. Right. Um, so let's let's break it down. What what are these things? You said it's sort of an an an, an alternate route uh, to a rather than I rather than an IPO. Tell us more about it. So SPAC uh, is an acronym. It stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, and they basically function like a reverse order. IPO. So yeah. in a traditional IPO, people have heard about these things. Um, a private company declares its intention to go public. It shares a bunch of information about the company with the public. And then investors pump money into the company to, in exchange for, you know, little pieces of the company in term in, in exchange for shares in the company. Um, they know lots about it and and that's how they make that decision. With a SPAC, that process sort of goes in reverse. So uh, they set up this shell company that has no real business itself, and that company goes public. They sell a bunch of stock to investors in return for a bunch of money. They use that money um, to go look for a company to acquire, hence the the blank check name. Um, they then find a private company, merge with them, and uh, voila, that company is now public. So SPACs have been around for, in some form, for decades, uh, but they have really exploded over the past year. They were used to raise something like $83 billion in 2020, which was more than the entire previous decade of SPACs combined. Um, and, and then this year, the trend has has gotten even hotter. Uh, in, in just the first few months of this year, these blank check companies have already raised uh, something like $98 billion. Yeah, um, I feel like I've learned a lot just by having you that explain that to me, Bill. I really didn't know much about these these SPACs, but why exactly are they jumping in popularity right now? So the big things are are, are speed and ease. Uh, the, the the process is much quicker and simpler than a traditional IPO, since the money is, you know, the money is raised already at, at the outset, and then it's used to to sort of buy up one of these companies. So the decision making is much more centralized. It's it's the SPAC and the target company rather than this whole sort of drawn out, you know, roadshow that goes into an IPO. Um, the, the the actual process of taking a SPAC public is easier too. That thing that happens at the at the front end, since the shell company has very little baggage, it's not an actual company. It's just sort of a shell. Um, so there's a lot less for regulators to pick through. The auditing process is simpler. Um, there's clearly some other advantages for for investors and target companies that we really don't have time to get into in in this context. But suffice it to say that that folks are are really seeing a lot of option or a lot of reasons over the last year or so to choose this route over, you know, the IPO route that people had had used for for decades. Um, I mean, just in the way that you've described it, I mean, it's it obviously seems like a, there's like any financial instrument, like there's a lot of speculation that has to go on. This is sort of like if you're describing it as a blank check, then you're paying into something without it having a precise shape yet, which is a long way of me asking, why is this getting attention from the from from the government now? 
Yeah, and I think you hit I think you hit on it when you mentioned the blank check because that I mean just the name alone yeah. is a little pejorative, right? It, yeah. it sort of makes you makes you think of of, you know, it's it it just feels a little less uh, you know, a little less tied to an actual company and it's more just giving money to people to spend on something. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even more specifically, uh, there there are sort of some some kooky incentives here behind yeah, the scenes yeah. that the folks who are shepherding this money, you know, from the the investors uh, to the ultimate merger targets, the companies that are going uh, public through this process, mm-hmm. they often get a big cut when that deal happens. So that has led to concerns that these folks are looking to create more of these deals and and sign these deals rather than really do the right deals, if that makes sense, um, yeah. which eventually would leave the investors and the target companies holding the bag when when these deals don't turn out. Mm-hmm. Uh, those concerns are, are heightened somewhat because there's this perception that these are more popular with the inexperienced retail investors. We talked about that a few weeks ago in, in the context of the GameStop. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, craziness. So... Um, but I mean, e- even more specifically, I think let's let's talk a little bit about the legal side here, because over the past few months, as I mentioned at the very up top, federal regulators, specifically the Securities and Exchange Commission, has has really been signaling louder and louder and louder that they're going to take uh, a pretty hard look at this boom in SPACs. And that makes sense, given the context you've set up for us here. There's definitely stuff for them to look into. Um, what has the SEC said so far? So it really started last month. Um, the the SEC issued this guidance warning investors about um, uh, specifically about using these in the context of SPACs that are pushed by celebrities. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jay Z, Shaq, a bunch of other celebrities have thrown their names on these things, and not to impugn those two in particular, but the SEC really made a point to say. Um, you know that these sponsors who are pushing these things could have undisclosed deals mm-hmm. that are you know that, that they might see compensation that isn't necessarily tied to the way that these uh you know these mergers and these public offerings turn out or that their endorsement doesn't in itself confer legitimacy or or right. or, or or lack of risk i guess is the better way to put it and i it. think yeah. that gets to again the idea that i think the sec is um they're sensitive to the idea that this is something that retail investors are intrigued by. So yeah. that, of course, raises more concerns about consumer protection. Um, then last week, we had uh, we something even more concrete, which was okay. a, a top SEC official uh, came out with a note, uh, sort of a guidance on the SEC's website, cautioning against the perception that, that SPACs are somehow less subject to securities <laughs> law that they are that they are you know somehow exempt from aspects of the law the quote from from him was any simple claim about reduced liability exposure for SPAC participants is overstated at best and potentially seriously misleading at worst <laughs> indeed in some way liability risks for those involved are higher not lower so in particular the SEC appears to be worried about this this idea that's floating out there and has sometimes been touted by the folks who are pushing these things mm-hmm. that SPACs are less bound by requirements that a traditional IPO company is is bound by that that bars companies from making really rosy projections about what they'll do once they're public these these projections about future earnings mm-hmm. critics obviously worry that if those rules don't quite 
apply to these companies that are going through the SPAC process, that it can be used to entice more investors, that it can draw in more money to deals where it shouldn't. All the previous stuff that we mentioned earlier about mm-hmm. about fear that these will be used to that these will hurt investors. Um, in the statement last week, the SEC made a sort of put a point on it and said that nobody should be under the impression that SPACs have quote a free pass from material state misstatements or omissions. That's interesting that the that they they felt it, it it was it was a potent enough issue in their mind to like even absent you know anyone filing a a lawsuit or some kind of enforcement action that they felt they need to say like hey we are looking at this by the way this isn't just because it's it sounds new or it's being sold as a new thing doesn't mean you're unbound by by our by our oversight so and i think know. that's a great point to make because the sort of vibe that the sec i think is trying to put out is we are we are onto this and we this is not some unregulated wild west yeah. you know i think there's a certain amount of um uh you know the deterrent effect uh that comes from that and then sure. this week on monday uh the sec continued that that stuff and they issued this um it seems like it took a lot of people by surprise this new set of guidance on uh, a pretty arcane accounting issue that I won't get into here. It's too complex to break down here. But the upshot is that it's going to force a lot of companies that have gone through the SPAC process already and those that are looking or about to mm. to review and possibly resubmit a lot of financial statements about the way that th- their <laughs> deals are structured. So okay. it's going to cause um, it's going to cause a, a slowdown in the short term. It's going to cause a lot of um, probably late nights for accountants and lawyers on Wall Street. So um the takeaway here, I think, from the whole thing is that this has been this booming piece of the way that Wall Street has functioned for the last year. But I think the party is starting to slow down. Um, it's partly because th- perhaps because this mushroomed so much that these were inevitably going to start slowing down. You know, if you have all of these blank check companies that are already funded and they're all competing with companies to take public, that that yeah. you certainly run you sort of run out of good targets after a while. But I think the other thing here is that regulators really seem intent on on hitting the brakes on this or at least cooling it down um, before it turns into some kind of bubble or something that gets out of control. Again, this week's Pro Se is sponsored by CaseFleet. Experience a better way to build winning cases with CaseFleet's case management software. This software provides lawyers with tools for reviewing evidence, organizing facts, and identifying trends that would otherwise remain hidden. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Workers at an Amazon warehouse in Alabama voted overwhelmingly against union representation in a hard-fought election. The outcome was a setback for organized labor, but it may not be the end of the story. Here to tell us about the vote and what happens next is one of our employment authority labor experts, Braden Campbell. Thanks for joining us, Braden. Uh, Thanks, Amber. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be a really interesting one to talk about because all eyes were on this vote in the labor world and I think in the broader world, too, just to see what would happen with this kind of worker advocacy. So tell us about what happened with this organizing effort. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, all, all eyes and you know, certainly the labor world and also I think a lot of eyes in sort of the, the world generally are watching this one. You know, obviously a, a big deal. Amazon, one of the you know, most notable or largest employers in the country, you know, has no uh, current unions and not much history of, of attempts to unionize there. Um, and, you know, this represents a pretty, you know, novel effort uh, by to sort of organize workers in sort of what is kind of becoming uh, sort of the new uh, akin to kind of the, the the old Ford plant jobs where, you know, you could mm-hmm. get out of high school and, you know, with just your diploma and get a job at, at this place paying, you know, uh, above minimum wage, get benefits and the like. You know, it's it's a it was a big um, sort of attempt by by the union here. Yeah, I mean, it's a monolithic company uh, and any organization there is uh, going to draw eyeballs. We should say, you know, this was the sort this was at one plant, yes. right, in, in, in Alabama. Right? I, yeah, I, I, I just want to contextualize it a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This one. So it was at the um, uh, the plant in Bessemer, Alabama, which is uh, a fairly new plant. I think it opened actually um, in in spring 2020. So this was um Sort of yeah, uh, an organizing effort at a fairly new plant again in in you know Alabama, which is you know not one of the most union dense places. Not that right. anyone anywhere really is these days, but you know the South. That's another aspect of this that you know it's it's seen as sort of a tougher place to to organize, or at least a place where there are fewer unions too. Well, and it proved to be pretty contentious. Um, that was, and I think we should talk about the sort of process of the vote itself. Tell us about. Um, Amazon's response to this organizing effort, and then we can probably just go and talk about the. Uh, Amber has already said the vote uh, failed. Sure. We can talk about the the, the, the sort of uh, context of of that failed vote is um, uh, is is interesting. So just talk. Yeah. About so that. so yeah. I mean, Amazon sort of. I mean, they they kind of followed sort of the the standard. Yeah. You know, playbook to a T of opposing this. I mean, they and you know at the very beginning kind of inflated the unit. The workers wanted to organize into or the petition. You know, the the um, RWDSU. Uh, petition uh, the retail workers union you know they they sought to organize 1500 workers in their petition the nlrb um, amazon argued it should be closer to 6000 and you know that's the number that ended up voting um which is a common tactic that can kind of you know uh dilute the support right, you know exactly. you figure the union had a lot of those 1500 but a lot less of these 6000 um you know amazon sort of proceeded to you know kind of again continue that campaign of you know you saw a lot of media reports coming out of bessemer about of the uh, you know meetings that workers had to sit through and the you know pictures of uh, you know signs at the um, you know in around the warehouse saying you know not to unionize you know this, I think this some of those signs I even dues. saw yeah I saw some of those signs pictures of them were even in like bathroom stalls at the plant like they yeah, were all was, over that was one of the things on Twitter yeah I mean it's kind of a, it seemed like a very ubiquitous thing you know ads on TV um, yeah. sort of a bunch of in yeah so this this thing uh, kicks off in in early February the NLRB held a mail ballot vote which it's been doing in you know during the COVID pandemic right. ran from early February until uh, late March, um, six, you know, six, seven weeks, something along there, and ended up getting you know, around 3,000 votes back, counted it, and uh, it was a pretty, yeah, pretty rough one for the union, about 1,800 votes uh, uh, against the union, about 704, and then kind of several hundred, um, you know, challenged or void ballots that weren't counted. Yeah, that's a that's a real blow to the union that, you know, was trying to do something novel, got a lot of attention for this, thought they were going to make some big inroads here. Um, You know, it kind of feels like the end of a story. But I know from your continued reporting, there's a lot more to it than that at this stage. What's happening right now? I mean, it seems like we got the initial vote, but there's going to be a lot of challenges here. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, so basically, you know, while the NLRB was still counting votes, but you know, at the point at which the numbers had sort of gotten out of reach for the union, I got an inbox from an email in my inbox from the union, basically saying, uh, you know, we're going to challenge this thing. You know, so they they have been you know going from the start. Um, so yeah, there are basically two tracks that they they're saying okay. they're going to go down. They can you know file what are known as objections uh, to. Um, the you know, Amazon's conduct here, specifically related to the election, they can also, and have said they will file, you know, unfair labor practice charges, uh, alleging the company interfered with the vote. Um, they're sort of litigated on different tracks, but they end up boiling down to the same thing, which is, you know, did Amazon take actions, you know, take illegal activities that tainted the vote? You know, did it intimidate workers, spread informa- misinformation, make threats? You know, uh, and, you know, did they do that to the extent that it could uh, sway the election? Um, well, let's let's kind of dig into that together, Braden. I mean, I think there's very heightened feelings on both sides. You know, business leaders beyond even just Amazon pretty regularly will give information to workers that are looking to unionize, explaining why they think it's a bad idea. That's common. But the union here is saying that Amazon went beyond those um, expected reactions from a business. What kind of stuff do they say that Amazon did that was, that was out of bounds? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's not, I mean, the they haven't filed their objections yet, so it's not 100% clear what exactly, but their release kind of, you know, says, refers yeah. to sort of, quote, mistruths um, that were okay. shared in, you know, these uh, so-called captive audience meetings, which are these, you know, meetings where workers have to attend um, and sort of listen to the, the employers say, you know, all the reasons why they shouldn't unionize. Um, it, it alludes to some, you know, misinformation in, you know, ads that were apparently blasted on on TV and the radio that workers were susceptible to. And there's another sort of the, the interesting wrinkle to this one. I mean, you see kind of those you know, captive audience meetings are standard. You know, you see yeah. that in a lot of campaigns. But one interesting wrinkle to this one is sort of that, you know, the union has been touting is that this use of a mailbox um, that you know, was installed on the Amazon property to collect votes, you know, Amazon is saying that, um, you know, this mailbox just mailbox just made it easy for, you know, workers to just, you know, come in and drop their, you know, votes off as they're, you know, coming to the facility. Uh, however, the union is arguing that, you know, this, this was, um, a misstep by Amazon and that, you know, it, it sort of potentially tainted the vote here. Yeah, you wrote a really interesting feature for us this week um, about that, which I would encourage uh, everyone to read if you're interested in this. Can you tell me what the experts told you about the exactly what's going on with this mailbox claim? Uh, like you said, they, this was sort of nominally imposed as a COVID measure to like allow yeah. people to do it at a distance. Um, and you know, we don't want to sort of overinflate the claims. Obviously, the, you 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 uh, reported that like you know successful challenges to votes aren't. Uh, are are fairly rare but that this this mailbox thing presents an interesting wrinkle what did like what did the experts have to say about that just from a legal standpoint yeah so it's interesting so you know in in an election with a margin this large there's kind of you know uh these objections are sort of harder to win just because you know if if it's an election decided by five votes you know it's it's not that hard to you know uh, suggest that it, you know, an employer interfered with those five votes when it's, you know, a thousand vote margin, it's a lot harder. So the union's going to need to, you know, point to something or several things that sort of indicate that, you know, Amazon seriously, uh, you know, casted it out uh, a ton of votes here. Yeah, or, like a, sort of, or like a systemic thing. Yeah, yeah, a systemic thing. And this mm-hmm. is sort of one of those things that could potentially, you know, do that. You know, it's not, uh, there isn't really clear NLRB case law just because there aren't really a lot of, you know, mail ballot elections or, or nearly for the scope either uh, yeah. of kind of something like this. 
But yeah, I mean, it kind of uh, the people I talked to sort of speculated, you know, this could be argued, you know, workers could see this mailbox, you know, that is within view of the facility and, you know, think that, you know, Amazon was surveilling them and who's voting, which is something that, you know, the NLRB has said could, you know, be viewed as an intimidating thing that would, uh, you know, prejudice an election against the union, you know, they could, they could see it as potentially, um, you know, Amazon having, you know, too much involvement in this, you know, I did speak to one attorney who kind of, you know, was sort of skeptical that the board would see much to this just because, you know, this is a U.S. Postal Service box, it had, you know, locks and the idea that, you know, workers would think Amazon was, you know, sort of packing this thing that's a, you know, that's a federal crime, he kind of pointed out, you know, there's, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, others sort of speculated and pointed to the idea that, you know, yeah, this, this could suggest sort of, uh, too much involvement by Amazon um, on the the election. And it seems like um, part of that argument of too much involvement might have just been uh, to depress the turnout, that if Amazon, you know, managers could see who walks up to the box and puts in a vote, um, there was a low turnout in this election. It was it was less than half. Right. Yeah, it was it was I think a little it was like a little more than five percent. Yeah, it's it's, definitely like a low turnout relative to an in-person election. I think sort of the. the mail ballot format that they've been using, you know, during COVID has, I think, generally kind of, you know, turnout's been lower when workers have to, you know, fill something out and put it mm-hmm. in the mail, you yeah. know, rather than just being able to go to their workplace and sort you of know, kind of fill out the the ballot in sort of the, the chosen location. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that certainly, you know, that could factor into what the union, you know, argues too. You know, I think that that might be a tough one for them to argue because that is actually something Amazon said in their argument for an in-person vote mm. uh, with it, the mail, the, um, you know, the mail format could depress Yeah, both things. sides yeah, yeah. could argue it's an that, interesting, right? If it, yeah. Yeah, if it had turned out a, a, a certain way. So it seems like we're going to have a lot to watch about how these um, challenges unfold. But let's assume that at the end of all that, things stay the way they are, that Amazon won, that the union doesn't make up enough ground here. There's still some takeaways for the labor movement, right? I mean, I think on first blush, you think this is a big blow. But I think the broader labor community is saying that there's some positives that came out of this, regardless of how the vote turned out. Yeah, I mean, I think so. There are some, you know, kind of uh, postmortems that, you know, some some outlets have been publishing kind of, you know, uh, weighing on how the union approached things or sort of kind of the, you know, where where labor law is now kind of a lot of you know thoughts being bandied about. I think kind of the big takeaway from this one um, is that, you know, unionizing is a uh, a hard thing to do, you know, it's in, yeah. in any environment, you know, it's uh, you know, a difficult thing for a union to kind of secure the critical mass of support to, to win an election. And it's, you know, especially hard uh, an employer like Amazon with, you know, the, the resources and the will to sort of, you know, push back mm-hmm. um, you know, as much as it can. Um, I think, you know, if, if the union had won, uh, you know, that would have been, you know, a huge, uh, you know, landmark event for the union, you know, showing some kind of, you know, resurgent labor movement, you know, I think a loss kind of sort of just confirms what a lot of people already know, again, that, you know, organizing is a a hard thing. And, you know, unions, especially at a place like Amazon, which is going to, you know, pull out all the stops to fight them, uh, you know, may have a a tough time winning. But, you know, it appears that the union here is, you know, digging in for uh, what could be a long effort. So, you know, we'll see how things go from here. Britton, thanks for coming and sharing all the details of this one. I think it's really interesting. And I know we're going to be tracking it a ton in Employment Authority. So if people have liked hearing about this, they can check out more of your work. Um, Looking forward to reading it as it unfurls. Yeah, thanks for having me, Amber. I appreciate it. 
like to end our show with something offbeat. And guys, today I just I want to tell you a story about Rodney and Julie Weaver. Okay. Rodney was Great. recently sentenced to two months in prison and six months of home confinement for his role in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. Sure. Um, sounds pretty run of the mill until you figure out what the conspiracy is exactly. And it was just, you know, your run of the mill faking of Julie's death at a national park. I love All right. It. Yeah. Now uh, it's it's it it can be sometimes a fraught process picking the offbeat story. You want it to be funny, but if people were injured or people, you know, there's a, there's a lot of considerations. So I do enjoy talking about a faked death. Uh, we are that, pro sure. fake death. That well, that as as content, yeah. Um, and that gives us a lot of room here. So it, like it does. And yeah. I want to give some credit to producer Steve who brought this one to us because he knew this was. Uh, just ideal for me. It's a wild conspiracy. I love talking about that kind of stuff. But right. it happened in my hometown. Wow. I'm so excited. Finally. This like, just like Springsteen. At home. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm bringing the greatest hits of I'm Beckley, West Virginia. My so. death in the park. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So let me run back just a little before we get to the, the faking of her death. Um, Julie was arrested and charged in 2019 for healthcare fraud uh-huh. after she she did stuff like submitting some fake applications to the VA um, as part of like an overbilling scheme and they mm-hmm. figured it out. She was charged. She actually pleaded guilty to that in 2020 and just a few weeks before she was said to be sentenced, she and her husband decided to go with fake your death, run away. They can't send you to jail if you're dead. Um, or find that you. was uh, the logic. Sure, I mean, I you know that's the the, the next death I fake will be my first, but uh, but I <laughs> but I do know I, that much. I do think you have joked about this on the show, Alex. So maybe take some notes here about what not to do because it didn't uh, go particularly well okay, for them. That's the sound of my pen. Okay, yeah, great. yeah. Take some notes here. So I want to start by just because this is my hometown, I want to give you a little context. Um, one of the great parts of West Virginia, I think most people know, is that it's got so much natural beauty. And an area near where I grew up is the New River Gorge. It's so beautiful there. There's a national park called Grand View, which obviously, you know, it has a grand view. It, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this like main overlook. And I actually looked this up to be sure I had the, the general numbers right. But it's about 1,400 feet above the river. So it's hmm. very high up. And it's you guys will probably would know it even if you just saw a picture. It's a pretty famous one where you're like looking out at the mountains and you literally see the river like running around a mountain. You see like two bends of the river. It's it's very mm-hmm. pretty. So I went there all the time as a kid. Um, this is where the Wheelers decided to stage their big thing. Uh, Rodney called 911 from the National Park with a story about how Julie had been searching for a lost earring and had basically <laughs> fallen off a cliff at the overlook. You gotta go. You gotta don't. You can't go so dramatic if you're. It, it's got. <laughs> well, you know, I really like the detail of like, oh, she's over there for a lost earring because in my mind, I'm imagining this place I used to go to all the time as a kid, and there are guardrails and some things to try to keep people off of the most dangerous rock outcrop areas. But of course, people always scramble over those barriers. And you really could have some pretty dramatic accidents there if you weren't careful. So um, I think that's some of where this comes from. Okay. I don't think they anticipated what would happen next. This, of course, resulted in a huge search and rescue effort. It was hundreds of volunteers, law enforcement, uh, personnel trained in actual searches and rescues in this area. Everybody came out to look for Julie. They sent helicopters from the 
Air National Guard and the West Virginia State Police both sent helicopters. Repelling experts came out to the park and they started repelling down the cliffs looking for her. Oh man. Rescue dogs came out. They were scouring the grounds. It was like everything you can think of, anything you've seen in a movie, they basically did it all. Yeah. This went on for a couple well, of days. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Um so meanwhile, during this multi-day effort, Rodney gave a bunch of false statements because he was sticking to this plan. He even posted some stuff on Facebook about the uh, quote unquote accident. Um, he said things like, I am heartbroken and lost right now, but I have to have faith. And then he asked people to keep Julie in their thoughts and prayers. I mean, it was a full performance from him. I think huh. you got you got to go ocean. If you're if you're going with this, right? I mean, <laughs> Lost at sea. clearly, yeah. this is a place where Lost a body could or could not be found. Like, right, it, right. You know, well, it's like my big yeah. question for you guys is, what do you think Julie was during this adventure? Because I really loved how this turned out. I'm going. I'm going billiard room. I'm going billiard room. That's nice. I'm, it's a good clue, guys. I'm gonna go with uh, <laughs> wearing a, a, a like a, a fake mustache and yeah, the Groucho uh, marks. <laughs> sure. <right. laughs> yeah. Well, if she was gonna disguise herself at all, she'd definitely wear two matching earrings. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am very much not a person who has lost an earring. <laughs> so good. here's where it turned out she was. Two days later, they found her in her house. Hiding in a closet. Oh, awesome. okay. Yep, right. Just in her own house. Um, she had plans to <laughs> run off with Rodney into like permanent hiding, but they were like waiting for things to sort of die down so he could get away with her as well. I love the um, disparity in the scope of the faked death versus yes. the hiding place. It's totally. like, yeah. it's Me like, too. oh my god, she fell off the Empire State Building <laughs> and she's hiding under the bed. <laughs> yeah. yeah right that's basically the plan it. is like really half cooked <laughs> yes so in statements ultimately to state and federal investigators when this was all discovered rodney and julie both admitted that they conspired to fake her disappearance and of course the reason was to avoid julie's pending federal sentencing for that health care fraud they were just trying to get her out of that so you know that's kind of brings us up to date with where we are now and getting some sentences um just to kind of cap out this conversation about it i told you rodney got a couple months in prison and then some home confinement julie was actually sentenced in february she got 54 months in prison and that's both for the healthcare fraud and also for faking her can i get can i get an itemized bill there i mean i like is (laughs) what how how much do you get for just straight up faking your own death because i look i mean mean, i'd like to know for future reference right right, if you or alex ever want to fake your death we both you know take some lessons about not doing such a dramatic choice um but also we got to figure out what the penalty is just so you can assess whether or not it's worth it I just wanted to say, I mean, I don't, I don't really support this uh, generally, but I, but I do want to give some shouts to our man Rodney. I mean, his wife was having some troubles, and this is, I mean, say what you want about what they did. I mean, he really, he really tried to help. I mean, this let's, is let's, good let's husband say that. stuff. True uh, yeah, love, I, mean, I guess. Sure. He's, 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 I mean, if if nothing else, he is committed to the wife guy cause, and for guys, that, uh, I he have has my to, recognition. Yeah, I have to end this show and immediately go ask my husband if he's yeah. willing to help me fake my death. I mean, it feels like an important question, and I hope he gets the answer right. Good, I think, good, I think good he dinner would. Talk. I feel like he will too. I'll let yeah. you guys know. I'll let you guys know what he says. All um, right. Thanks for being with me this week. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Braden Campbell, and contributing reporters, Kevin Stawicki, Chris Villani, and Tom Zanke. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, 
leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform that really does help other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, head on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.